Welcome to The Originals, a podcast dedicated to stories of those who make and do original things. It is my great pleasure on this episode to introduce all of you to someone who's a great friend of mine, a great friend of the agency, and um, probably one of the most original characters personalities that that we know and comes straight from the heartland. Uh, Ray Raphael, Ray Maurice, is a noted poet, scholar, teacher, and just, uh, I believe, and he'll probably dispute me, one of the true voices of, uh, of the heartland of America. And uh, Ray, it is a it is truly a joy to have you on the show. Joy to be with you too, Ray. Yeah. Um, I want to get right into you devoting yourself to poetry, which is, my God, is that a, a difficult task. We were talking about that just before we, we started recording. Mm-hmm. Was this something you just had to do? Did you did it call you, or did you just know? How, how did this happen? Well, it is, it's vocational um, in the sense of a calling, um, and you never know when it's going to leave. That's the like part of the anxiety about it, right? Making poems or literature or whatever. It, it can go at any time. And um, I remember sitting with my brother at a get-together maybe 20 years ago, and uh, there was kind of idle chat around a dinner table, and my brother and I were just kind of talking to one another. And I said, excuse me, and I went to the bathroom, and I think it was one of the first poems I really tried to make. It was garbage. But I went in the bathroom and wrote a satirical poem, and I've, I've always been called to it. But it, it, it's primarily an interest in reading it, I think. The muse exists. Uh, yeah, yeah, in some capacity, yeah, it, definitely. You know, Andrew Wyeth has a very similar story for Christina's World, his masterwork. Really? Yeah, yeah. He was at a dinner party, mm-hmm. and he got up and just left. And his <laughs> wife was like, what? What's going on? And and he went straight to his studio and he started charcoaling Christina's world. Well, in the case of Wyeth, that, that produced something. This was a relationship. <laughs> this was me being rude at a, at a, slightly rude at a party and developing a good relationship as I have over the years with my trash cans. So, but nevertheless, it was, it was there. And, uh, yeah, from, from a very young age before one even, you know, I would say, gosh, seven or eight. We had T.S. Eliot records in the house, and, uh, you know, of course, a seven- or eight-year-old, no matter how precocious you might think you are or want to be someday, there's no way you know what he's saying, but you know the music coming through the speaker system, and it's something otherworldly and strange and really beautiful and wonderful to be exposed to at a young age. I, I was lucky that way. And... I mean, you're big on the poetry scene. I mean, you, are you, you publisher, editor of, of a... Yeah, I'm co-editor at U-City Review, which is right out of uh, St. Louis here. Uh-huh. And uh, Andrew Cox is the head editor there, and I'm co-editor with him. And it's a, it's a wonderful magazine that gives gave me a chance a long time ago. First place to publish me. Gave, really? Gave me, gave me stones to write more and more and more and do more readings. Uh just a fantastic, I mean, it's truly a, a magical magazine. It really is. It really is. Andrew's run it. He's been there, gosh, I want to say 10, 15 years he started it, and maybe longer. And uh, 
he asked me to come on as co-editor. We've had the opportunity to publish so many wonderful poets from Jeremiah Driver, Joe Soulier, uh, 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 Brent Underwood, so many, Jim McGowan, all local St. Louis poets. and just it, it's, it's just a magical place. And we get international poets, we get national poets, all sorts of things, but it, it, it's a wonderful magazine. You know, it seems to me that poetry survives through all, doesn't it? Like, like great painting. I mean, it truly is a pure art. It just, yeah. no matter what goes on, no matter what happens, there are people like you and the men and the people that you just mentioned, they are going to write and they are going to keep poetry alive no matter what. And they do it. You know, I mentioned the MA programs or, you know, the MFA programs, which I don't have an MFA, but I know so many people doing this art that aren't doing, are not doing it in a vacuum quite, but they're not entrenched in universities. They simply have to do it. It's, it's not, I don't want to say it's a compulsion, but it's almost as if there's no choice anymore once you've turned into a poet, I guess. There's yes. no choice but to work at it. You can neglect it, but you'll be aware of that being the choice that negates working at it. Awesome right? insight yeah. there, yeah. right? It's, so it's always with you. Yeah. It's always bothering you, tapping, <laughs> tap, tapping you on the head. And, yeah. and it, you, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I don't really care to like say people make sacrifices for it. I guess you do or you don't. It seems to me that other people around poets are the ones making the sacrifices. You know, Saul Bellow said, anything you get up in the middle of the night to write, you don't have to worry about. Like, or some, I'm paraphrasing, but he's basically saying, if you unass yourself from your bed at, say, two in the morning, and you've got a line, and you've got something going, and you get up and do it, well, you're going to wake the, your partner next to you, you're going to be hammering at your typewriter, which in my case, I actually do use those, and... Uh, that already is an irritation for the people around you, but it has to be done. I mean, it just yeah, I think that's a, that's a great uh, perspective from Saul Bellow because I, I find that in my life too. It's just for some reason, you know, the clock strikes at a dark hour and you wake up and it's like, if I don't put this down, it's gone. It's gone. Well, Osip Mendelstam uh, and many and others have said it too that the best poems aren't written for various reasons he's getting into but one has to do with that not getting up and doing it or you just don't have pen and paper or it's an or it, it, it's a uh, composed in the head and forgotten but it was so pure the feeling yes and there's no distance between the head and the heart and the page that but the page isn't there to get it down and it evaporates you know it's, it's this tragic thing that happens I talk to poets all the time about that but. where and then you're trying to find it again and you're there's a, yeah. a there's a sort of a, a a ghost memory in there of something and you're trying to drag it back and yeah. it doesn't feel the same and it's no. not the same and you, no. now you're examining a memory as opposed to having the thought right and the there's a really interesting bit in the lectures by Jack Spicer, who was a poet. I, th I think he's out of California, and he was a librarian primarily. But uh, he kind of saw poets and writers, too, I guess, as uh, radio receptors for a, a muse coming in, and you just simply wait. He even said to mistrust sometimes your first idea and wait and let it roil and broil in your head. 
and you're, you're simply a recept, receptacle for whatever you want to call the muse or your idea or your uh-huh. Yeah, he, it was, that was super helpful to read his lectures, but yeah. I mean, I tend to work more in the devotional sense of it. Like, And of course, I'm not uh, proselytizing to any listeners at all. Right. It's a private matter for even me, but I do think a conception of God and even maybe a bit of gratefulness towards one's God is kind of a calling towards poetry, is kind of like... I don't know. I have found throughout, and I'm not trying to trump science with the the, the, no, god, the, not god, <laughs> the god idea in any way, but it tends to be when I have a spiritually sound existence, or what I perceive to be that with God, that I can write better. I know that. And I'm more receptive to lines teeming and coming through, so in a way that's kind of analogous to what you're talking about. I think think entirely. You know, it's fascinating. Um, I I wrote my graduating thesis. (laughs) This will surprise a lot of people. I was a Wittgensteinian, really, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 philosophy of language uh, Mm -hmm. uh, guy at at St. Louis University. But my my thesis was on, uh, as all philosophy is, and probably poetry, is the um, pursuit of truth. And my argument was that the truest thing that we can know as a common experience is the ineffable experience. Yeah. yeah. Because it cannot be put into language, but you know you had it. And everybody knows they had it, whether it's that awe moment standing right. on the Grand Canyon or looking up in the sky or feeling a love towards a puppy or a child sure. or whatever sure. it is. There is an ineffable experience. And that the minute it passes, you have nothing but the memory of it. Mm-hmm. And you're just experiencing the memory. It's not ineffable anymore because you, you're able to begin to describe what it was you thought you had because you're looking yeah, at memory. Yeah, but the ineffable, to me, is sort of the thing, maybe the closest thing poetry gets. Yeah. Where of one cannot speak, one must be silent. The last line of the Tractatus. And there you uh, are. Yeah. Because I, I don't think Wittgenstein, and I, I'm sure he's not saying that what you can't talk about, just shut up and be silent about it. I think he's saying be attentive to what the very thing you're talking about, the ineffable. And yeah. Then, and then later, maybe as you're, you're 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 putting forward, you could put it into language. And but language then, being yeah. being town, and then village, and then city, and mm-hmm. we add streets, Edition. and we take yeah. away streets, and we have addition, and we have all this, and and that it's so fluid and it's organic and it just gets built all the time, and we see that. I mean. We're, I don't know that it's a language crisis, but I think the country's going through some struggles with what things, certain things are supposed to mean anymore. And, yeah. and maybe looking back not even that long ago, realizing that we've always been doing this. We've yeah, always we been redefining and trying to, you know, re-quantify our, our, our environment. Yeah, I, I believe in earnest efforts, democratic efforts that... that redefine language and you know come we come up with new words and neologisms and things like that the trouble is with government action getting involved with it like you'll see in canada with the what is that that c16 oh yeah jordan peterson jordan Jordan peterson uh, i think is tremendous intellectual and he is really on point on and it's not out of hatred come it's not hatred coming from it's intellectual it's it's honesty it's It's honesty and intellectual stability and he simply doesn't want to be forced to use words. He says if he plainly says if we can sort this out ourselves without there being a, bill, a law on the books about it, right. I'm all for it. 
Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it really it really cuts to personal freedom and it goes a, a yeah. lot of directions. Yeah. But yeah, Jordan uh, Peterson, I think, is uh, is a pretty sharp guy and from an too. intellectual standpoint and and the protection of freedom of language. I think he's also ultimately a very decent human being. He is. He <laughs> and he's really funny. <laughs> he's a very funny guy. Yeah. Now here's a, here's a quick transition to someone uh-huh. who I don't think is is very funny at all, but we both love him. Cormac McCarthy. Yes. I mean, wow, right? Oh, well, wow every day of my life. I mean, I from Blood Meridian to the road. I, I mean, the acrobatic sentences in Blood Meridian to the spareness of the road, the ironies and humors and darknesses in No Country for Old Men. I mean, I could go on and on, but... I there there's almost not a day that goes by that I don't think of some line or gesture from Cormac McCarthy. He he is a punch you feel for a long time, isn't he? Yeah. Your whole life. <laughs> your whole life. Yeah. If you'll submit to his writings and just simply let them be and take them in and trust his writings. I, I wish I, I think he should get the Nobel, but I really do. I I agree. I think there'd be a better candidate. Right I now. agree, and I think you know those two two bookend examples you gave. Blood Meridian mm-hmm. was so vast and so overpowering for me. And then when I got through all of his work, and then I read The Road, and the way it was laid out, it was almost like reading a gospel. Yes, it's like a synoptic gospel. Yes, it really is. And the the, the bits where the father says to the little son. Okay, and the son says okay, and nothing is okay. But those are those precious, precious yes textual moments that that kind of uh, punctuate each scene with okay, okay, and you know nothing's going to be okay going on. And but the road doesn't end on a nihilistic note, which it's is not a bit of it's not nihilistic in my mind at all. I agree with it, you it's entirely. About life drive, and, and about, you know he yeah. he addressed that. Oh, did he? Yeah, he yeah. said he said. He wrote that after he just had his son. Yeah, he, that's right. He he uh, didn't he wake up in that hotel room, motel room, and opened up the blinds. And he said that he had been thinking about writing it for ten years. Yes, and, yeah, and that yeah, yeah. that it was the birth of his son and the experience of being a father. Yeah, late that, in life too. Late in life that yeah. changed what we now know as the road. Yeah, um, that nihilistic current that ran so strongly through everything. Just wasn't there in this. No, book. it's a deeply tender, tender book. Oh, and he's, you know, I come from a different perspective, obviously, but his Manichaeanism, at least, that's apparent in Blood Meridian. You know, something I think we could attend to a little more is the problem of evil. That's Cormac McCarthy's genius: is that there's always been evil, there always will be evil. It sounds cliche or simple enough, but we don't give it enough attention in politics and everything else. We, there, there's also been good, you know. That's obviously what Manichaeanism is, is right? Warring of good and evil, good and evil, right? And there's nothing to resolve that conflict. But Coral McCarthy has his finger and his his muse on that that pulse of, of good and evil, and they're always vying for each other. So why don't we why don't we jump into um, the idiot's calendar? What I'd, I'd like, like to, to do is I'd like to to ask you to read, mm-hmm. and then. And maybe tell us about, you know, the impetuses, the, uh, you'd mentioned Cormac McCarthy mm-hmm. before, and 
and just some of the uh, the inspirations for the entire yeah. piece itself. Yeah, well, I'm going to read a poem called Rectitude. Uh, I'll just preface it by saying moral rectitude was, you know, it's been talked about since we've been a species, I would imagine. And uh, when I was at St. Louis University, I remember a medieval philosophy professor saying they would, monks and, um, you know, medieval scholars would put a bar, a long tubular bar into water and they'd watch it bend. And they didn't know as much as we know, I guess, now about refraction and how things bend in liquid with light and all of that. But anyway, it, it occurred to me what an interesting thing to think about, like moral rectitude and then a visual representation of something crooked and straight and, you know, that sort of thing. And this, this poem, Rectitude, came out of reading Cormac McCarthy and reflecting on rectitude, as the title says, so I'll read it. The police caught me near these weeping willows, creeping up lakeside. I gave up under dawns, rack and ribbon. They took what little I had. And I was long gone, babbling my season's luck and miscarriages. The county jail, silent as a brick, stiller than God. I crashed out on the bunk's logic, its rectitude rectitude what a strange word for dead monks to thrash about and i dreamed horse-faced sheriff was reading from a sacred book his boots propped on the desk his words scattered by an oscillating fan it was litany it was the liturgy at my father's funeral reverent as the edge of morning glories a reckoning it was a catalog of tender girls I had loved, their terrible fates blowing against those crooked trees. And we'll be back with our interview in just a minute. But if you are or know someone who is truly an original and have interest on being a guest on our show, shoot us a note, podcast at nocoastoriginals.com. Make sure to check us out on Instagram and follow our feed for pictures of our guests and other stuff we find originally cool. And now we return to our interview on No Coast Originals, The Originals. So we've just uh, heard a remarkable reading of a remarkable piece of poetry. Um, And the book itself, I told you before we started recording, just... It really caught me, really genuinely caught me as a phenomenal body of work. Could you share with us? And again, it's the Idiot's Calendar, um, available on Amazon. And Barnes and & Noble. <laughs> and Barnes and & Noble. And out of my car and house. Out of the car and house. <laughs> and we have a copy here. Um, talk us through building this book of poetry. It started off in Stacy Lynn Brown's chapbook class years and years ago uh, at SIUE. And it, it sounds overly simple, but I didn't realize you could arrange a book of poems. I had read plenty of books that were well arranged, but I didn't know I could do that. Or, you know, after publishing a poem, building off that poem, or after writing a poem at street, town, city. I didn't know you could do that, or at least I didn't think I had it in me. And uh, to give a shorter 
version of it, it just, I, I wrote middle sections in St. Louis and edited them, and then I moved out to Washington. I'm going to have to give a, a quick shout out to my fiance, Miss Christina Ann Daniels, because she accompanied me to Kansas City for a reading. I was asked to go to throw down Kansas City, and it was a weekend of poets at Prospero's Books primarily in Kansas City, Missouri. And I read, you know, was asked to read on a Saturday afternoon and a Sunday morning, and it was a wonderful experience all around, and I got to meet so many wonderful people. But uh, Spartan Press was there, who, the folks who put my book out. And uh, I remember Christina and I were sitting near a bench having a coffee and a cigarette and just chatting of this and that and enjoying our time in Kansas City. And a wonderful gentleman came out from Prospero's books. He said, hey, do you want to you put your book out? Send, send me a, a PDF of it. And I thought, okay, like, we'll see. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, be reasonably cynical that anybody's going to do anything for you. But I, I, point being is Christina Ann was good luck. Spartan Press, wonderful folks there. They put out beautiful books. They're hardworking. They, they see to it that everything's in place. And, uh, I mean, yeah, that's kind of a truncated version of what happened. But uh, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, revising, and uh, a lot of luck. I, I believe firmly in luck. Um, who do you enjoy? Uh, as, uh, across, you know, uh, across the cultural spectrum, music, film, oh, art. Just yeah, hit us hit us with a few. We'll wrap up with a, a, a few yeah. of the things that you really you really treasure, you really love, you, you Rob, really enjoy. Yeah, uh, as far as poetry, I'm going to keep it very narrow. I I have to say that one of the biggest influences, as far as realizing one could work under conditions of duress, and I, I don't want to say anguish. That sounds too too much, but. Pain, you know, the human condition is partly yeah. is a good deal of pain. Well, the poet Robert Lowell, ah, utter. I've read it's not just reading his poems, which I think are so powerful and so well made. Yes, and you can sometimes sense him getting his mind in order, like trying to order his mind as he works through those beautiful sonnets and poems he made. Uh, he just blows my socks off. Um, Painting, gosh, it's so broad a question. Um, yeah, it is. It's uh, just a, yeah, sort of um, kind of a hit list. Yeah, it is a hit list. Painting, Max Beckman still blows me away. Yeah. Um, music. Music. What do you, what do you listen um, to? I'm a creature of my time and place. Uh, a lot yeah. of rock and roll, Rolling Stones, um, lots of jazz, classical music. I love Mahler. Um, I love de devotional music. I love Gregorian chant. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, again, you know, I was talking earlier about that spiritual relationship, the muse and all of that. Sometimes when you feel like a barren desert of a person, you can sort of make up for that by sharing in someone else's aesthetic expressions. You know, uh, I put on Mahler's Ninth Symphony. I put on... God, Palestrina, you put mm -hmm. on Gregorian chant, and I'm, I'm in another world. I'm, it, I might as well be in the stars. I don't need to be on Earth. And that's the America we talk about. That is. That is. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Brad. My pleasure. With all due respect to Mr. Yates, the esteemed poet, 
We believe the center will hold. It is here in the center of America where we find a mindset, ethos, and culture native to the heartland. And it is from here that we scan no coast to no coast for the originals we feature in every show. Thank you.